This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. The worldwide health implications of the coronavirus pandemic are well known and discussed at length. But what of the ramifications for society as countries grapple with the many dilemmas they face battling the disease's spread? Griffith School of Government and International Relations Professor Sarah Davies is urging us to consider these impacts on the wider community, saying it's not just health experts that should be at the decision-making table. Her research and book such as Containing Contagion focus on how humans face immense challenges such as massive disease outbreaks. On this episode of The Gender Card, Sarah warns that to ignore the wider societal implications of coronavirus puts at risk the health warnings themselves as not everyone is in a position to act. Sarah Davies, welcome. Thank you for joining the Gender Card Podcast. Thank you for having me again. Here we are in the midst of, I think it would be fair to call it a crisis. Is it a worldwide crisis yet, the coronavirus outbreak, Sarah? Yes, it's been officially declared by the World Health Organization as a pandemic. And what that means is that we're seeing the spread of the disease, the transmission from country to country at a global level. So it's across all main continents now. And it has taken on an unprecedented trajectory. So people are now describing it as the once-in-a-century pandemic. So the equivalent that we know we can stretch back to is the 1918 influenza. So what are the implications of that? Is it possible to uh, take a pause and and Mm. look at that at this early point? I think it's actually... It's difficult at this point to do so because for most of us, right, we're talking, we're thinking about how do I keep my loved ones safe? Do I have enough toilet paper because of all the crazies down the shop buying it all? You know, what does a trade and travel ban mean? What difference does it make to my life right now? All these sorts of things are definitely going on. You know, I had a holiday booked in June. Does that mean that I get my payment back or my, you know, my deposit back or not? And I think when we say it's unprecedented, I think it's because we don't have answers to a lot of those questions. And that tells us the enormity of what this is. And I think it's being actually to allow us all to take us to stop, take a breath, remember that it is something that most of us haven't experienced of this level before. There are people in our communities who have experienced this kind of isolation, devastation. I'm thinking of those who've survived war, um, those who've survived other types of outbreaks in their communities, thinking recently of the of, of the Ebola hemorrhagic fever outbreaks in West Africa and the DRC, um, cholera outbreaks that we've had happen across a number of different areas around the world. But as a globe, where we're all affected and we're all in this together and we're thinking about supply, demand, trade, travel whether or not I, my kids are going to be at school tomorrow. No, this is this is quite unprecedented. And so what it means is that I'm of the view that a lot of what I think I know about how we manage this politically, how we manage this in terms of communication, how we manage this as a society is going to be to some extent written as it goes. But there are some things that we can call upon and it's important that we do call upon 
those types of the ways in which communications are received, the way in which our government is structured. We need to remember that, particularly from our position, we are relatively health privileged. We have got very good healthcare system. We've got, thank goodness, a universal healthcare system. We have a very strong tiers of government, very strong division of powers in the way in which our government works. Uh, and for the most part, most people in our society will obey the regulations and the laws that are laid down. But I think it is also fair to say that there are other places where the implications of this virus could be quite far-reaching, and we need to keep that in mind. Is it possible to balance those, Sarah? The, the push is very much on for quick decisions, yep. making massive quick decisions to prevent huge outbreaks. Is it possible to balance that? I think it has to be. And Mike Ryan from the World Health Organization the other day in a uh, press briefing said, let not perfection be the enemy of response here. And I think that's a really good piece of advice. It is better to over, it's better to prevent, to even be called, you know, you're overreacting. And I think for a government, this is always a fine line for them to manage. But I think it is at the point, and you're seeing this, where governments are now starting to try and preempt and institute measures that communicate to the population that they have this somewhat under control and, the, and, and they are trying to maintain control. And I think that was one of the reasons why there was a lot of concern from the World Health Organization to issue that pandemic notice was because what that then triggers is either the sense that there's nothing you can do, it's coming, versus panic. You know, it's everything in life is always at the spectrums, right? And I think we need to hold the middle line and remember that there are things we can do as individuals. There are things we can do as society. Our government is managing it the best way that it can. And there are other places that are also going to need our assistance as the time comes as well. Because, Sarah, you are an expert in this area. You've done a wide research on this, particularly in the Southeast Asian region mm -hmm. and also Africa, which, of course, you mentioned before. What, what can we learn from these regions, do you mm -hmm. think, as we grapple with this outbreak? They haven't ever dealt with something like this. <laughs> we'll say that. Uh, um, I think what, what we can learn from this and what we can learn from the types of cooperation that's been sought over the last, really since SARS, was a, was a key moment, the severe acute respiratory syndrome in 2003, which originated from, we think now, from, we're quite confident from China, is that cooperation really does matter. Um, it really is vital that other states know what other states are doing. At this point, I think it's very difficult to ask every state to be doing the same thing. One of the goals was always that if we all adopt certain travel bans, if we all adopt certain social distancing measures, there can be a certain consistency in the messaging that's coming out. I think we're at a stage where different states are doing different types of, are adopting different types of measures, largely because they're being affected in different ways and their capacities are different. I don't think it's going to help us at this point to be trying to say, look at what others are doing and saying they're not doing enough or they're doing as much as us. It's inevitable that we're going to do that and it's an instinctive thing to do that. But I think right now what people need to focus on is 
what is the advice out there, the scientific advice that's being issued from the World Health Organization. And a lot of that advice is actually about what individuals can do. So, you know, if you know you're in a high-risk category, you do start to take the steps right now to self-isolate. Um, that's different to then maybe what your government is issuing. And then, of course, this is where we then get to start to get into the issues about gender and societies and economies because some people don't have the economic power to be able to make those decisions freely as opposed to others. And the access to that information. Absolutely. So what I've seen in the region is in looking at how preparedness for a potential outbreak was being discussed over the years that I did field research there, was that there was a lot of discussion actually about how to build a collective response. So how can everyone, knowing that some states have universal healthcare coverage, some don't, knowing that some states have not very democratic systems, so information you receive or information you trust might be different to in a democratic country where you've got freedom of information and sometimes challenging competing information. Um, and then on top of that, you've also got societies which have um, different forms, different social and cultural practices, which has a big impact then also on how communities come together or how they how they you know divide in these types of outbreaks. And a lot of the a lot of the, the the attempt in that period of time was to try and instill certain non-negotiables, if you like. So, if you can access or if you can detect what is going on, if you can test and detect, you should. If you can't test and detect, you must ask for international assistance. If you can share the sequences, the the genetics of the virus, you should. You know, if you can, you really should. And if you can't do it yourself, you should get in the assistance. There needs to be some consistency in how we communicate this message to our populations. Even if we are different political regimes, even if we have different types of societies, there needs to be trust in the science and then communicating that science to the populations. So a lot of it is about trying to build these... Um, consensus around what are the minimum norms, what are the minimum standards we all have to agree to, taking into account that we're all at different levels of capacity, we all may have different types of political regimes and therefore different pulls and pushes going on. And I think that messaging has actually been very important for responding to this outbreak. We can spend a lot of time finding and pointing to all the things that have gone wrong and all the things that we wish had not have happened the way they had. But I do think it's important, especially in a moment like this, to try and find the things that have worked. To think about the fact that within a very short period of time, we've been able to do the genetic sequencing, we've been able to develop testing, we are all around the world trying to share that testing, we are all around the world sharing the information about social distancing, 1.5 metres, cough into your elbow, wash your hands with soap... Those messages are really important and they're universal. And so I think we need to focus in on the, on the messages and on the attempts to cooperate that have made a difference up to this point. Because if we just focus on the bad, um, that's not going to be good for us. And as you say, that's no mean feat when you think no. of the variety of governments and regimes, as you say, uh, and the, the modes of government that they have, the way that they rule 
basically over their people. Absolutely. And I think this is also really important. That's one of the things that I've been struck by in looking at this is the way in which we think about, receive communications. And that's a vital part of outbreak. Uh, Surveillance and detection and response is do communities know the symptoms Do they know what's going on? And if they know what's going on and that's a little bit unusual, they know who to contact, they know who to report to. And this, again, is a universal need, you know, whether you are in a remote rural location or you are in an urban environment, you need to be able to, there needs to be some way to get that information to you that this is what's happening and this is where the steps you need to take. And that's very difficult. And what we're seeing again in this outbreak is some very novel attempts to try and use technology, to try and use different communities, to try and get that out. Because we also know too that not everyone now listens to the radio. Not everyone today was sitting listening to our Prime Minister deliver that address. There will actually be large numbers of the population who will never see that. So how do we get to them and how do we communicate to them? And that's a problem elsewhere that occurring all around the world as well. Well, and particularly with the misinformation that, as talked about, that comes through social media. Now, that's where a lot of people get their information now. So how do we... It's been great to see our responsible Mm. private media companies, particularly our social media companies, agree to take steps to ensure that if anyone is trying to find information about COVID, they're automatically directed to the official World Health Organization or government sites. That, for me, is a really reassuring step that they have taken to make sure of that. But then, of course, there is always going to be the inevitable secret squirrel type of conversations that are going to go on between groups and, you know, people in their WhatsApp group and people in their private Twitter DMs and people on Facebook who may still, you know, just click past it, not look at that alert those are definitely populations that we need to think about how to access and how to communicate still to them. And we know that this is important because this is all part of what's been happening at the moment in the last few years with this anti-science sentiment, um, this this sort of distrust of science or this belief that science excludes certain people and certain values and certain rights, and it's trying to actually communicate. I think it's more important now than ever that that science actually has a really important role in our lives. It's not the answer to everything, but there are certain knowledge that we can ascertain, we can test, we can prove, and it could save your life. Is it time also to talk about the implications of some of these decisions, though, Sarah? I remember last time we uh, spoke that you talked about how health is an area that is quite good at talking about technical solutions, mm-hmm. but how those decisions are delivered in a social environment, not so much. Has that played out yet? Yes, and I think this is exactly the issue here, this, this, this disjointed, if you like, between how science views itself and the role that it has in communicating its knowledge to our populations and then how our populations view and understand the role of science. And I think science has been very important in trying to adopt these universal truths and these universal hypotheses that can be tested, these universal measurements. But perhaps what hasn't been as successful for them or what hasn't, what they've sort of had to deal with is the fact that we're not all at a universal level of reception. We are not all at the same level of power. We are not all at the same level of economic and social freedoms. 
And so, therefore, the agency that I have as an individual to accept that science and and adopt what I'm being told to do may not be the same for me, and it may not be right for me. And so, what we were talking about then was, you know, the Ebola outbreak. I remember, and how different communities have had waves of external interference that has sometimes been very harmful to their lives and very destructive, or ignored the complexity of how they manage their day-to-day lives. And I think we've got an issue here going on with this at the moment. So when we talk about social distancing, keeping 1.5 meters away, and if you're sick, what social isolation means. If you're Or a mum with three children, or a dad with three children under the age of five, social distancing and tucking yourself away in your bedroom is not going to work <laughs> as much as you might wish it would. And we also know, on the flip side of that, that social isolation and quarantine can be very dangerous for certain individuals. Well, and even culturally, I imagine there are some cultures within Australia that this is just not—it um, it would be very abnormal behaviour. Yeah, so mentally, culturally, it's confronting.、Um, but we also need to think about as well individuals who are managing intimate partner violence, individuals who are managing family violence, oppressive relationships. What it may be like now in this moment to not only be in a situation where you're being told you have to spend confined periods of time with these individuals who are exercising harm against you. But we also know that there may be populations who are having that experience, plus economic uncertainty, economic vulnerability. So they may no longer, due to the consequence of this outbreak, have the same kinds of economic freedom, or just a little bit of extra cash, to make the decisions about whether or not they're going to be able to. Charge up their phone so they can get help if they need it. Whether or not they're going to be able to leave the house and make the types of decisions that they may need to make about food and access to alternative shelters if they need it, because there's a whole range of other dynamics that go on for individuals in those circumstances that go far beyond the message of cough in your elbow and you know keep you 1.5 meter distance, because they are having to manage this on top. Of everything else, and that could be exacerbating the violence, of course, as well, and becomes a circular, a cycle. We're quite confident, actually, that that is what will happen. So we know from previous outbreaks, in particular, if we look at the Ebola outbreaks that have happened in West Africa in 2014, and then the DRC in 2018, we know that women and girls, especially, are at much higher risk of intimate partner violence and family violence in these situations. We know that poverty can also create situations where. Uh, individuals who are already in dire economic circumstances will take more risk to be able to try and ascertain access to certain markets,、um, and that therefore further compounds the notion that they are violating, you know, the regulations when in fact they're needing to seek alternative sources of income to gain access to food and to, and you know, and safety. We also know that there are. Real significant problems as well in terms of being able to seek ongoing medical care 
So if you are in, in prophylactic devices, you know, so trying to prevent. So if you're in a relationship, or if you're at risk of being in a, an exploitative relationship, and you can't get access to condoms in this crisis, you could be at a higher risk of receiving, you know, a sexually transmitted infection, which can create a whole wave of then further health implications. We know that people with low income will try to avoid or not want to try and seek healthcare, and this is not necessarily in our Australia. Context, but it certainly is in other environments where healthcare is always it's not it's not always free, or there might be a certain like a consultation might be free, but the medication isn't free, or the test isn't free, and so an environment where you've already got very strained healthcare resources, and you've got populations that are now in lockdown, so they're not getting any types of economic means of support. That's going to further compound the type of healthcare that they can then continue to receive that they may desperately need to have access to. But even in our Australian environment, and we, we were joking about it before, Sarah, but I suppose it, it actually does put a different light on some panic buying. Not everyone has the agency to go. Oh well, this is okay because next week they will have restocked the the grocery store. You know, yeah. uh, uh, and it, it does feed into that sense of panic. And I think this is why it's been really important to see very early at the outset, and there's still more we could do in terms of thinking about the proportion of our casualised labour. Thirty percent of Australian workers are on some form of casualised labour, contract labour, and that is um, that means that a lot of those will usually uh, has a high proportion tend to be female. And what we know then is that there already is this mental labour of trying to think about how many hours can I do, how can I also make sure that my parents are okay, and I'm getting what they need. If the school ends, what am I going to do in terms of care for them? Um, there's also those who may not have children, but may have other family members who they care for and are having to, you know, they're the direct carer support for them. Um, and we also know too that there is that there is a high proportion of those individuals in that casualised labour industry that don't have the little bit extra tucked away or saved in the back. There is they're very economically vulnerable, and so we need to already right now be thinking about what can we do economically to ensure that there is some buffer. And so this is why the movement to try and get corporations to agree. To provide for paid leave, even if you're on a even if you're on a contract position, that you shouldn't just be told to access your sick leave. Um, that it's actually really important to make sure that there is that people who are at who are working in particularly in these customer service jobs feel like they can take the time off if they need to. They won't be economically penalised because that is part of our frontline defence. Because most carers are. Women. Most of the people taking on those caring roles are women as well. Indeed, they are, and that also then further compounds the issue where there is going to also be a long-term need for us to think about what is going to be the implications for unemployment. Where we've had up to this point a fair degree, where one of the reasons why a lot of women seek casualised labour is because they know that they always need to be able to. Drop in and out of work depending on the home care needs, and so I think there's this part of a bigger conversation that we need to be having as a society about how we value unpaid care, 
the consequence it has for individuals' economic security, or in this case, economic insecurity. But also the assumptions that were built into this system that this is sustainable. When we see clearly in this crisis that actually it really do, can do monumental harm. It can do monumental harm to our scientific messages, and it can do monumental harm to us as a society, and it can do monumental harm to us socially and how we interact with each other as Be- well. Because even on the issue of schooling. I just feel that this issue has really not been broached, and yes, it is an emergency, and yes, we need to deal with it. But it's almost like we're just tiptoeing around the issue of who is going to stay home with all of these kids who aren't at school, if that's the decision that's made. And we see that this is certainly what's happening at the moment with the percentages. You know, so in the UK, forty percent of healthcare workers are affected. If we do school closures here, we see thirty percent, and that's are affected, and and that feeds into the notion then that we are not necessarily prepared for this. I think also though we have to keep in mind the fact that this is unprecedented. <laughs> But then on the other hand,、um, there may also be, and this is the discussion as well at the moment, whether or not. May actually be better for children to be at school in terms of being able to try and maintain some control on the spread of the disease. But then I think also what we have to think about there as well is the assumptions that we're building into the system around teachers and the expectations that we have, which are again predominantly female, around how they then are managing their care situations if they have care if they have. Family members who require care. How are we thinking about and accommodating and ensuring that our education people now, who we're asking to also be on the front line, are managing and coping? And again, there's this expectation, this assumption that they'll just take it on, that they'll just manage it somehow, as well as looking after their kids at home. Exactly. And so again, I think there's a lot, and I think a lot of reason why there isn't a lot of thought about this, about the economic benefit we derive. From this type of care and this type of model, is because, to be honest, a lot of it is、um, set up to ensure that women are at the front line, managing and making and accommodating these multiple balls that they're juggling. Because there's shift workers, of course, who are women as well in in healthcare services, nurses or, or、mm-hmm. police, or and there really hasn't been a discussion about how that the implications of that. Not everyone has grandparents to assist, let alone the grandparents are usually in the high risk group anyway. Exactly, we're actually saying please don't call mum and dad to help you out with the babysitting because they're a high risk category. And I, again, I think what this. Indicates is the fact that we have an outbreak right now that is revealing fundamental long-term issues that we have around how we identify、uh, workplace and childcare structures, how we think about unpaid care as not contributing any economic value to our society when, in fact, it contributes enormous value to our society. And we're seeing this right now. So the grandparents contribute enormous economic value, and and they're the product of the creation of a system where we've not really been able to effectively manage or think about how we can support women and men in the workforce. Plus, also insisting that you know that there is a continued supply of children to ensure that there is a continued supply of our economic system. And so I think these are th- what this outbreak is bringing up, and should and should bring up, are these long-term conversations about 
the exploitation that sometimes comes from casualized labor, the sort of the gendered norms or the, or the expectations that we have around who will take on those care roles and who will take on those casualized labor roles, the power and the agency that individuals have to access information and to make decisions, healthcare decisions, that are not solely about are they an anti-vaxxer or not, but actually are they in a position economically and then within their family unit to exercise some control over the types of health messages that they're receiving. And it's not because they're ignorant, willful or stupid. It's because they may not be economically able to exercise the type of authority they want to, they would like to. They may not be within their family unit being empowered to exercise that type of authority that they that they know they would like to exercise and because also there can be a lot of pressure on them in an environment where they really probably don't have many options in those environments. They really don't have the type of agency that me and my privileged position have. And, you know, and I think that's also important for us to remember that not everyone is approaching this emergency from the same position of privilege or freedom. There are many, many layers and we've got to recognize that and be respectful of that and then think about how we modify the messages that can come. And that's, that's a big task. And a lot of people tend to say that's too much to do right now. Gender needs to come later. Social economic rights need to come later. But actually what a lot of us are trying to show if you don't realise that right at the moment of communicating an outbreak, you are not going to effectively communicate your message. And people won't have the agency to act on your message because you're just assuming they're all white men at the age of 50 with loads of choices and options. So we need to have these philosophical discussions now. It's not just about the health outbreak. I think they're rights-based discussions, and I think it's also just acknowledging that, you know, we now know that the people who are part of our community are not all the same. And it seems like such an obvious statement to make, but what it means, though, and there's been some really excellent research showing this, that what it means is that, you know, who uses Twitter? Who uses WhatsApp? Who uses Facebook? What times of the day do they use it? There are actually some quite strong gendered norms around this that are, uh, that are playing out, which means that who you want to receive information at particular times, the way in which you develop apps, the way in which we think about how we structure our communication messages really will have to be, it could be, could be tweaked a lot more effectively if we take into account that, that type of knowledge. And then it's the same as well in different types of societies as well. Who has access to technology and who doesn't? Who has the power and the authority to make decisions about who will go out and get the food, who will stay home and look after the children? These sorts of things also have very much shaped and informed by the, the gender norms that the social norms that are in that society. And as you say, by grappling with that, it will make these health messages more effective, which surely is the ultimate outcome, really, that we're aiming for. Absolutely. Yeah. It's and that and that for me, I suppose, is the one thing that is very important then when we're thinking about who is sitting at the table making the decisions about how and how a state is going to manage the response to an outbreak, that there is a tendency there 
from the World Health Organization down to privilege certain knowledge and certain voices, and in particular to privilege uh, your more positivist scientists. You know, so your epidemiologists, your medical doctors, and your virologists, and they definitely should be at that table. Of course, they should. But we also need to have your human rights specialists, your civil society workers. Dare I say it? Your gender analysis, <laughs> your anthropologists, maybe even a political scientist every now and then, because there are certain functions around governance, legality and regulations, gendered relations, community relations that are really important to know as well. Because who is receiving your message? Who can act on your message? Who can have the authority to sometimes challenge a message? Those are really important things that. We need to know as well in this outbreak. I think that seems like the perfect point to end our discussion today for the gender card. Sarah Davies, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Take care. That was Griffith University's Gender Equity Research Network member, Professor Sarah Davies. That's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.